Well, we are in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 this evening. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this evening again. We can come and look into your word. We ask your blessing upon us as we consider the word of God. Pray you'll remove distractions out of our minds and allow us to focus on your word and what you teach there that will be of help to us and instruct us in our own Christian lives, our own experience with Christ and our service for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So we are looking at Acts chapter 8. We're dealing with the early ministries of of um, Philip here, Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 40. We've looked at Stephen, and now we're looking at Philip. Stephen was one of those deacons in Acts 6. So is Philip apparently one of those deacons of Acts chapter 6. If you think they're deacons, I was saying that they're not called deacons, but apparently the office uh, probably... That's what you look back to. These people function as helpers to the apostles, which would be like helpers to the pastors, uh, doing things so that they could devote themselves to the word of God in prayer, we're told. And we were looking last time at the evangelization of Samaria. And we noticed that Philip went up to Samaria. Remember the Samaritans? We talked about them last week. We don't know exactly where Philip went. Somewhere, a city in Samaria. It doesn't The text does not say which particular city in the region of Samaria. But we notice that, uh, remember, these were the hated Samaritans. These were people whose origin goes back to the times when the Jews were taken captivity by the Assyrians. Some Jews were left, of course, not everyone was taken captive, but Gentiles were brought in, transplanted there by the Assyrians, and they intermarried and produced a race of partly Jewish people and Gentile people. These people we think of as the Samaritans, they consider themselves really truly Jewish people and the true inheritors of the Old Testament promises. And uh, remember when the Jews came back uh, under Nehemiah and so forth, um, they, they, the, the, the Nehemiah would not allow them to participate in rebuilding. They wouldn't re- allow to rebuild the temple. The Samaritans eventually built their own temple on Mount Gerizim here, we saw last time. And then the Jews destroyed it. So there was this hatred between the Jews and Samaritans. We mentioned John 4, the woman at this, the well in Samaria, and, and Jesus is talking to her. Remember, she says, well, Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. We don't, we don't get along. You know, they're, they hated each other. So uh, there was this long-standing conflict going over 400 years between the Jews and Samaritans. And so now Philip... Uh, is directed, we're, we're, we see, Philip went down, verse 5, chapter 8, verse 5, to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah. And we saw that people were saved there in that uh, chapter, beginning in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. And uh, we saw last time this man Simon, sometimes called Simon Magus, because <laughs> Magus is the, Magus is just the, the, Greek word for magician or sorcerer, Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician. And he was uh, had a power over the people. He claimed to be sort of a divine person. He was a huckster. He was uh, a phony. But uh, when Philip came and he saw these miracles and signs, it looks like he was just saying, I'd like to get part of that. That's a great actor you've got there. I mean, that that's really great. I could... I could probably make a lot of money if I had those kind of powers. And uh, we saw that we were told initially in verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized. And I was arguing last time, you remember, that the word believe doesn't always necessarily mean um, genuine belief. 
Luke is describing uh, Simon here, and I, admittedly it says he believed, and so normally when the Bible says somebody believed, we would assume that it was genuine belief normally. And many people believe that Simon was genuine belief, was, was a genuine born-again Christian, but I don't think so. Uh, I don't think he is was. Excuse me, is there something that is later in the book that convinces you of yes, that? Yes, oh, okay. just a moment, I'll show you what it okay. is. So, uh, I say here on, in the notes, verses 18 through 24, Simon was not saved, I'm saying, Bill Combs is saying, even though he is said to have believed and been baptized. And I give some reasons there. The word believe does, doesn't always imply genuine faith. You know, you can look at some verses. Here's John 2, 23, 24. This is Jesus. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, this is shortly after the marriage of Cana, early in Jesus' ministry, John 2, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So, people are seeing these signs, these miracles. They believe in his name. But notice what it says. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Now, that word entrust is actually the same word believe. It's the same word pistuo in Greek. So they believed Jesus. He didn't believe them. <laughs> he didn't believe them. Because some people are just attracted. Jesus attracted a lot of people naturally. When you're doing miracles and signs and wonders, you're going to attract a lot of people to you. It doesn't mean they're all everybody who's attracted is genuinely born again and so forth. They may be attracted to the miracles and the signs and the wonders. So I'm saying that sometimes the word believe doesn't indicate genuine belief. Remember James 2.19, you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now they believe, but they're not regenerate. They're not believers in the sense of being born again. See what I'm saying? So I'm just saying, I'm just saying here it's possible that Simon is not a believer. So I'm saying the word believe. Notice number two I say, his belief seems to have only been superficial based on miracles. I mean, verse 13 said, Simon himself believed and was baptized. He followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. That seems to be what was attracted to him. Remember, Jesus had a lot of people who followed him for the loaves and the fishes. You know, that's very attractive. I mentioned next, number three, Simon is contrasted with others throughout the account. When we read the account, here's Simon, but then we read what the text says, verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. It's not like he's saying... I want to see these people saved and going to heaven. <laughs> I want this power so that, give me money, because I want this power to have people do these magnificent things and so forth. Peter answered, may your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and a captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So I'm saying Simon is contrasted with others. Simon, the others are said to believe Simon is contrasted. Number four, he's rebuked as an unbeliever, like an unbeliever. Verses 20 through 23 is a pretty strong rebuke, you know. Now again, some people think he was a believer who just messed up in his mind here, but he's pretty messed up because Peter rebukes him pretty strong. He says, you have no part or share in this ministry. Your heart's not right before God. <laughs> Verse number five, I say, he displayed no personal sense of sin, only fear of judgment. He says, pray to the Lord that this doesn't happen to me. I'm just, I don't want to be zapped. You know, that's what he seems to be saying. I don't want God to zap me. Uh, he doesn't, you know, seem to have a genuine repentance. Number six, according to tradition, he was an unbeliever. So it does, the text doesn't say, as I said, for sure here. But I think it's more likely that 
Simon was just a person who was infatuated. And you're going to have those in any church. People get infatuated with church. They come and they join and for various reasons and they're net, they, they're not regenerate, you know. We don't we we believe in regenerate church membership. And you know, we we make we ask people, have you trusted Christ and so forth and you know, but you know, sometimes people say that and they really haven't, you know. Some of us have, you know, made professions of faith. I made a profession of faith when I was 12 years old and got baptized, but I really wasn't regenerate, you know. It doesn't mean uh, that I was really saved because I made a profession of faith then. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I was acting wickedly when I did that, but I just didn't understand the gospel. It was just when in the church that I was in, when you got to be 12 or 13, everybody everybody went forward and got baptized. That's just the way it was. It was just a tradition. You know, you, you went forward and you got baptized. So I did. Went forward and got baptized. Verse 25, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So now the gospel has gone. You remember Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We finally got to Samaria. It's taken a while, maybe a year or two. This is like a year or two after... (laughs) after Jesus' death and resurrection. So even the apostles didn't rush out there. It took this man, Philip, to go up there and preach the gospel to the Samaritans. Well, we come now to an Ethiopian eunuch converted. This is still Philip's ministry here. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Verse 26 says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So here it is. Uh, Peter preaches up here and he comes down. As I say here, since the directions are given from Jerusalem, it's possible that Philip was not in Samaria at the time this command was given, but he had gone back to Jerusalem, possibly with Peter and John. We don't know for sure. But the, the angel said to Philip, Go south to the road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's hard to know. You know, he could be here and the angel is just saying, you, you know, go from Jerusalem to Gaza. We know about Gaza a lot, you know, in these day and age and so forth. The Gaza Strip and so forth. Um, so he's going down to this road. The Ethiopian here is returning to Ethiopia here and he's going down there. Uh Verse 27, so he started out, we assume from Jerusalem, going down to Gaza. On his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So Ethiopia is down here. So he's coming from, come from Jerusalem up here to worship. Uh, as I say here, Ethiopia is south of Egypt, as we can see here. It's known as Cush in the earlier books of the Old Testament. It is in what is today known as Sudan, but was generally then the kingdom of Nubia. People from this area were generally dark-skinned. We assume maybe this man was maybe dark-skinned too. We don't know for sure. But there is some question about when it says they met this man and he's called a eunuch. This could mean a eunuch in the physical sense someone who has physically been made a eunuch. The Bible uses the term in that sense. But the problem with that is it would prevent him from being a proselyte to Judaism. Apparently he's a proselyte to Judaism because he went up to Jerusalem to worship. And people who were physical eunuchs were not allowed to be proselytes to Judaism. Deuteronomy chapter 23 specifically <laughs> forbids them from being proselytes. So that's a little strange. He's obviously going to Jerusalem. He's carrying a book of a copy of Isaiah, as we'll see, because he's looking at that, and Philip, you know, discusses Isaiah 53 there with him. I mentioned here that the word Greek word for eunuch is also times used, sometimes used not in a physical sense of a eunuch, someone who's been castrated, but in the in, in a in a non-physical sense, someone without this idea of emasculation. 
For instance, it's used of Potiphar in Genesis 39. Potiphar had a wife, remember? Now Joseph, now this we know the, Hebrew, the, the Old Testament's in Hebrew, but in the Greek translation, is anybody here in how we got our Bible? Anybody how we got our Bible people here? Remember then, and the Greek, the, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. Remember what that was called? Septuagint. Septuagint. There he is. There he is, the man right there. Septuagint. <laughs> <laughs> so the Old Testament was translated. Now, now, don't you guys say he doesn't listen? I know you've been saying that, but that's not true. <laughs> this man is listening. So the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and in the Greek version of Genesis 39 1, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, was one of Pharaoh's eunuchs. The Greek word there is eunuch. But it's not a physical unit. We know that because he had a wife. So sometimes, uh, you know, a lot of times eunuchs were used in, as court officials in charge of harems and other things for obvious reasons. But then the term just got to be used of just anybody who was an official without the physical sense. So I'm just saying it may be here that this man is not actually a physical eunuch, but he is in charge of the treasury of Candake. This is a say not a personal name but a dynastic title like Pharaoh or Caesar and so forth and so uh, he's on his way he's sitting in his chariot verse 28 reading the book of Isaiah the prophet the spirit told Philip go to that chariot and stay near it then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet this is reading Isaiah 53 7b through 8a as we see later in verse 32 here. And uh, he says, Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. He says, How can I? He said, verse 31, Unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with the very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Verse 36, As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went away, went as a wooden way, rejoicing. Uh, I tried to find a, a picture that I've often that I've seen before of this baptismal thing. But it shows them, it shows these two guys in the water, and it shows Philip pouring some water over on top of the guy's head. You know, there's different modes of baptism. There's sprinkling, where you sprinkle water. Usually that's infants, you know. You can also pour water. That's called fusion. And you can immerse, you know. But clearly, as I say here, the expression went down into the water and came up out of the water can only refer to immersion pretty clearly here. But, you know, not everybody believes in immersion. I, was saying, I, was, I, I remember seeing a photo one time where Philip is actually picking up some water and pouring it on the guy's head. But if that's true, why do you walk out the water and get all wet? You know, why don't you just, <laughs> why don't you just stand on the side of the, the water and just, you know, get some? And, you know, you don't have to go down into the water if you're just going to pour some water on somebody's head. You know, you're going down into the water you're coming out of the water because you are immersing someone. So this is kind of a key text that baptism, baptizo, really does refer to immersion, physical immersion of the body in water. So uh, verse uh, 40, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse uh, 38 uh, when they came up out of the water, the spirit suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. We read, went on rejoicing. Verse 40, Philip, however, appeared at Azotus 
and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So uh, it says Philip appears at Azotus here and he journeys up to uh, Caesarea. As I mentioned there, Philip may have settled there because he appears about 20 years later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21. (laughs) This is Paul when he's coming back to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. He stops in Caesarea and there he meets Philip and he has these seven daughters who prophesy in Acts chapter 21. So maybe Philip settled down there in Caesarea because it says here he traveled until he reached Caesarea and that's all we know about him. So, so Luke leaves out a lot of things. Remember, this is Luke is trying to tell us how the gospel got from Jerusalem to what Jesus said, the ends of the earth, which really is kind of like Rome. Jerusalem to Rome is where Luke is trying to tell us. So he doesn't tell us you know, anything else about what Philip did this entire time. Well, now we come to this uh, third figure. We've looked at these pivotal critical events in the lives of these three pivotal figures. We saw Stephen and then Philip. He's the one who takes the gospel to the Samaritans. We're very important. And now the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, chapter 9, verses 1 through 30. First thing we see is the Christ encounter on the Damascus Road, chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Remember, this takes us back to chapter 8 with the stoning of Stephen. Remember chapter chapter 8, uh, chapter 7 and verse 60. Saul approved of their killing him. And then uh, it talks about chapter 8, that's chapter 8, verse 1. Saul approved of them killing him and then a great persecution broke out and so forth. Well, this is picking that up right here for us uh, in chapter 9. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who were belonging, who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So here's Saul. He's going to Damascus, on his way to Damascus, I say about 135 miles from Jerusalem. That might be about a week's journey if they're walking, maybe three days, four days, some some, some days on horseback. We just don't know how Paul was traveling here. The text doesn't say. It says at one point he fell to the ground. It doesn't say he fell off his horse, but, you know, was he traveling by horseback, possibly? Was he walking? People did a lot of walking in those days. A lot of walking. Remember, Jesus walked down from Jerusalem to Jericho one day. I don't know how he did it. We took a bus and it was hard. <laughs> it was hard on a bus, let alone walking. It's just, you know, like 25 miles, 20 miles, you know. It's just, just amazing that people walked as much as they did in that day and age. But people commonly walked 20 miles didn't think anything about it. Yeah, they were tough. <laughs> so uh, this was Damascus, and uh, Damascus had a large Jewish population. Um, Paul, as I say here, was going there to pursue Hellenistic Jewish Christians like Stephen, who had fled from Jerusalem. Paul may have gone to Damascus because... It was probably the first city outside Jerusalem where fleeing uh, Jewish uh, Christian Hellenists had taken refuge, setting up a community. So remember, we thought we were saying that maybe the main persecution in the book of Acts here was against (laughs) these Hellenistic Jewish Christians who were thought to, to not conform to Judaism properly and so forth. So maybe they were taking refuge in the city of Damascus. And Paul is asking for letters from the, from the high priest, from the Sanhedrin, to go there and try to arrest these people. Um, 
As I say, Rome allowed the Sanhedrin to have a large control over Jewish affairs outside the Palestine, including the power of extradition. Uh, Paul says in uh, Acts chapter 20, well, Paul didn't say, but when Paul gets to Jerusalem, when Paul gets to Rome in Acts chapter 28, he gets there and the officials in Rome say, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you. So Paul gets to Rome and he, he, he addresses the Jewish leaders and said, we haven't gotten anything from Judea. So they're waiting for something from the Sanhedrin, from Judea about this Paul and what's going on with him. As I say here, the, the high priest was the presiding officer of the Sanhedrin and there is no doubt that Paul was acting in an official capacity as the agent of the Sanhedrin to exterminate this new heresy of Christianity. This first rose up within Stephen. Remember, because Stephen was the one who was challenging Judaism. Remember, Stephen challenged those three pillars, the land, the law, remember, and the temple there. You know, he, he's, he's challenging these things that uh, that make Judaism what, he is, what, the, what, what it is. And we know that that now Christianity can't be confined to a particular land or it can't, it can't, we can't be under the law because Gentiles can't keep that law, obviously. There's no possible way. So Stephen is challenging those things, and so that's a real threat to Judaism. To Hel- to these Hellenistic Christians especially are a challenge. And so we're sa- I was saying here, as I said before, that when Paul was there at the stoning of Stephen and he was approving of what they did, I was suggesting that he was acting with the Sanhedrin. And I mentioned here... Paul may have been a member of the Sanhedrin himself, for he says, when Christians were put to death, this is Acts 26, he cast his vote against them. In Acts 26, Paul is giving his testimony again. Remember in the book of Acts, he gives it three times. This is for before Agrippa, as I remember. And he says, he says uh, listen, when Christians were being put to death, I cast my vote against these people. I say the particular language used, cast down a pebble, that's the literal what the text is saying, cast down a pebble against them, was the terminology used for official votes in Judaism. Casting a vote for capital punishment required membership in the Sanhedrin. So we're saying, I was suggesting that it's possible that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, remember I said that we know that rules that were written down about AD 200, which represent earlier tradition, but are not written down, say that a person had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. And that's what's always caused a question about, was Paul really a member of the Sanhedrin or not? Because when we see him in, in, in the book of Acts and we see the epistles, he's clearly not married. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, clearly indicates he's single at this time. But Paul could have been married. His wife may have died, you know, something like that could have happened. So we don't know whether Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, but it's certainly possible that he was. He's certainly acting with their full authority. And he's there to try to capture these people who are belong to what he calls the way, the way. And this is a terminology now that we see for Christians. I mentioned the verses here in various places in the book of Acts. Christians are designated... First, as the way. Uh, what does this mean? Well, you know, we don't know. It may refer to Christianity as the way to life. Our minds go back to John 14, don't they? Uh, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way. So our minds go back to that. And then maybe that's what, how they got this term, the way. We don't know. But they were called the way, apparently, as one of the first designations here. So, verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I've always thought that was an amazing verse in the sense of, here's this guy who is killing these Jesus followers, killing these Jesus followers, arresting them, trying to stamp out this new Jesus religion because he's serving God, you know. And he knows this is God who is speaking to him. You know, he sees this as a heavenly vision. You know, he sees this. 
And can you imagine his surprise, his shock, when he said, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That must have been unbelievable. Here he was. Thought he was working for God and he was on the wrong side of things, wasn't he? He says, whom you are persecuting. Well, was Paul actually persecuting? I say here, by persecuting Christians, Paul was persecuting Christ. There's this organic union between Christ and his church. We talk about union with Christ, uniting with Christ. Paul says over in Philippians 3.10, when he's talking about his own experience and his desire to grow in maturity, uh, in his growth, in his sanctification. Remember, he says in that famous passage, Philippians three ten, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. So, I want to be associated with Christ, be associated with his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So, Jesus and his people are associated, united together, and so Jesus says. Listen, Saul, when you persecute these people, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting Christ himself, which was an amazing thing, wasn't it? He said, verse 6, Now get up and go into the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but not, did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. As I say about verse 7, this verse says that the men traveling heard the sound. Verse 22, 9, when he, he, he recounts his conversion in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26 three times. In 22 9, he says they didn't understand the voice. So they heard some sound, you know, they didn't, they, they didn't, uh, they just couldn't understand what it was, what it was saying. They, when Paul says here, they heard the sound, but they couldn't make any sense out of it. Only Paul understood and heard the voice of Christ distinctly as to what he was telling him to do. Go into the city. So he goes there. He's for three days, he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. Now we come to Ananias' ministry to Saul, 9.10 through 19, in the city of Damascus. Along the way, I have a, you know, I'll show you a lot of pictures of ancient sites and places like that, but I can't show you anything of Damascus. There's nothing to show of Damascus, of the ancient Damascus. It's because, remember, I said in the ancient world, they would build right on top of the rubble of old cities and so forth. And nobody's doing any archaeology in Damascus. Nobody's nobody's doing Christian archaeology in Damascus, you know, or ever has hardly. So there's there's not much. There's nothing to really show you. This is just a a, a, a diagram trying to show you the street called Straight. What we know about you know the ancient city, what we know, but we can't. We don't have any remains to show anyone, as we do in other cities, as we'll see as we go along here. So verse 10, in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord said, told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Why Ananias? Most people think, I think it's true here, that uh Ananias was chosen so that Paul could always say that his apostleship was not dependent upon the Jerusalem 12 apostles. Uh, that Paul was not some sort of derivative apostle. See, Ananias was an ordinary Christian. And Ananias is just coming to confirm what the Lord has told Paul. He says, he has seen you coming to place his hands on him to restore his sight. And I want you to go do this. Let me turn over to Galatians chapter 1 for a moment. We'll be looking at Galatians chapter 1 a little bit here tonight because it uh, parallels here what we'll be looking at uh, in our text. 
But um, what I'm talking about here is the fact that one of the things that Paul faced quite a bit was a challenge to his apostleship. Paul was not one of the original twelve. He didn't walk with Jesus. He wasn't. He didn't personally talk with Jesus in that sense. Paul says, you remember, he says he was one born out of due time. He was chosen out of due time. So here he is. He saw Jesus, but he saw him, you know, on the road to Damascus, not in his earthly life. And so, in many, in some of the books of the New Testament, Paul's apostleship is challenged, like Second Corinthians chapter ten. <laughs> 11 and 12 especially. But here in Galatians especially, Paul's apostleship is challenged. There are these false teachers that have come into Galatia. Now we're going to study about Galatia here next semester. If you're with us, we'll we'll be talking about Acts chapter 13 and 14. Acts chapter 13 and 14 is the Galatian churches. Those churches that Paul established in Antioch Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Derbe, and Lystra, those are the Galatian churches that Paul is writing to right here after his first missionary journey. This is the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote about AD 49. It's not the first one in our New Testament, but it's the first one that Paul wrote here. And he starts off this letter right there in verse 1, Paul an apostle. Now when Paul says that, he doesn't say that. He says sometimes they say Paul a servant, like in Romans. But when he says Paul an apostle... Sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. So he's very clear here. I wasn't chosen by some man or any men. I was sent by, I was chosen by Jesus himself. Notice what he says in verse 11. Let me read verse 11, Galatians 1.11. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach to you is not of human origin. Remember, Paul's apostleship is being challenged by these false teachers we call Judaizers. They're saying, listen, this Paul, he's nothing. He doesn't have any authority from the apostles. You can't believe his gospel. Paul says, verse 12, I did not receive it, the gospel, from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Verse 13, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intently I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Now see, what he's doing here, he's laying the background. He's saying, listen, I didn't grow up in Jerusalem. I didn't talk with the apostles. I wasn't there with them. I didn't have any fellowship with them. I had nothing to do with them. What was I doing? I was persecuting. I was killing Stephen and anybody else I'd get my hands on. I wasn't going to prayer meetings with the apostles and learning about the Bible. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intently I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, uh, beyond many of my own age among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Remember, Paul is particularly called, as we'll see here in Acts 9, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He says, He called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Verse 18. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with, get acquainted with Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. So Paul is trying to explain to these Galatian Christians that his apostleship is not dependent upon the Jerusalem apostles. First of all, I didn't even go to Jerusalem for three years. Three years. And when I went, I only stayed 15 days. That's not enough time for a seminary education. 15 days. It's not, you know, it's just 15 days. So I didn't get it from the Jerusalem apostles. You see the point here? And we're going to come back to this because this chronology is important here as we get to Acts. But remember in Galatians he says, I didn't, I didn't consult with them 
I went into Arabia, I returned to Damascus, and then three years later I went to Jerusalem. Let's come back to our account here in Acts chapter 11. I mean, Acts chapter 9, I'm sorry. Um, here's Ananias' ministry to Paul, Acts 9, 10 through 19a. And we said he chooses, God chooses Ananias. He's just a regular Christian. He's not an apostle. So it's not Peter coming and laying his hands on Paul or anything like that. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Now, Paul is from Tarsus. I thought we might say something about Tarsus here tonight because we maybe won't have a chance later on. Remember, this is Tarsus. Paul is from Tarsus. He says later on in the book of Acts that when he was a young man at an early age, he came to Jerusalem. And we don't know what age that was exactly, but he studied with Gamaliel. Remember, he talks about studying with Gamaliel. So he was born in Tarsus. This is Tarsus. As I say here, Tarsus was one of the largest cities in the Mediterranean world. It was a center of trade and commerce. It traded in minerals and timber from the Tarsus Mountains. There's these mountains right through here that just isolate Tarsus, except for this passage, this narrow passage through here. Tarsus also traded in leather goods and made a type of felt cloth from the hair of black goats that populated the slopes of the Tarsus Mountains, which was used in making tents because it had a waterproof quality. So sometimes you can see pictures of tents made out of this stuff. It's a tent, but it's made out of this goat with this black hair kind of like stuff, and black skin and hair, and it has a kind of waterproof. Remember, Paul was a leather worker or a tent maker. This would be a natural kind of profession he would have learned there. So here's Paul in Tarsus. Um, as I say here, uh, Tarsus was important politically. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Cilicia, Syria. So here's Tarsus. This is a, a road 12.5 miles north of Tarsus that led from Tarsus to the uh, uh, Cilician Gates. Now here's the Cilician Gates. This is this narrow pass that goes through here. So if you're coming, if you're coming from um, anywhere up here in Europe and you want to come down through here, you're coming from whatever, wherever you're coming from, Greece, you're coming from Greece, and you want to come down here, you've got to come through this way. Alexander the Great came right down through here when he conquered. This is the way you have to come. Um, and here's the road. There's a road that goes through there. This is 12.5 miles north, marking the road. Here's the old road through the Cilician Gates. Now, you can't see that, but you can see the new road. Here's the modern highway. They've cut a modern highway through there, through those gates. Here's Tarsus. There are some excavations at Tarsus. Um, you can't excavate everything, but sometimes they dig up part of the city, and there are some excavations there. Here's a, here's a Roman street. Notice there's a gutter here. You'll see this on a number of slides I'll show you. There's a place for water to run down through the side of the street there. So here's just an uncovered part of the street there in Tarsus. Here's what I was showing you about. Uh, Tarsus was an important place. It was the capital city of this province of Cilicia, Syria. See, it shows a line right here. At certain times, these provinces were separated in separate provinces. But at this time, as I say, from 25 B.C. to A.D. 72, Paul's time, this was viewed as kind of one province with co-capitals. Tarsus here, and we'll see Antioch down here. Um, in a vision, verse 12, remember he has seen a man from Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Okay, so God says, go down there, and I want you to put your hands on this man, Saul of Tarsus. He's waiting there. He's coming for you. And Ananias says, Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Wait just a minute. Wait, wait. This is like sending a Jew to see Hitler. You know? <laughs> really? Lord? Re really? You want me to go down? Let me remind you. Let me just remind you, Lord, in case you've forgotten. Let me just remind you here. I have heard many reports about this man, and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. 
And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Are you sure you want me to go down there and see this guy? You know, this this is the devil incarnate right here. So uh, he says, yes, I want you to go because he's seen, he's seen uh, you coming and restoring him. And I mentioned here under verse 12, the re- this revelation to Paul was during the three-day period of verse 9. He had already been told some things in his encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road. Um, in Acts chapter 26, which is one of those three accounts of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts, it says in verse 16 through 18, Paul says, he's, he's, he's talking about his conversion Now get up and stand on your feet, God tells him, Jesus tells him. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will will see of me. I will rescue you from the Gentiles, from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to life and from the power of Satan to God so they may receive forgiveness and sins and place them among those who are sanctified. So in Acts chapter 9, it doesn't say any of that. But Paul is telling us this is what God told him, Jesus told him in that vision. So he gave him some information. Get up on your feet and, uh, and, and, go, and you know, because I'm going to send you to this kind of thing. And, it, you know, it's clearly, he says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Uh, and so that's exactly what I mentioned in Romans 11:13. Paul calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul was not one of the twelve. Remember, Matthias was the twelfth chosen to replace Judas. And they'll sit on the twelve tribes, uh, they'll sit on thrones, Luke twenty two thirty says, they will sit on thrones in the millennium judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So that will pro- that'll be Matthias. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, a special apostle chosen to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so this is quite a shock to Paul because that's what he had been trying to stamp out. Remember Stephen? Stephen is this heretical kind of message, and Paul is supposed to be picking this kind of thing up, which is just absolutely amazing, I'm sure, to the Apostle Paul. So, uh, verse 15, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. As I said, Paul was aware of what Ananias was going to say to him, Ananias was sent there to confirm this. This was a confirmation to what Christ had already told Paul on the Damascus road. Verse 17. When Ananias went to the house, his house and entered it, he went, he went, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Paul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Paul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Well, now we come to uh, Paul's... uh, conversion evidenced in Damascus. <clears throat> so Paul is in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, he could do this. This man was schooled in the Old Testament, right? Studied under Gamaliel. He understood those messianic promises. He just didn't <laughs> accept the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. But now he sees Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that Isaiah 53 was talking about and so forth. So here's a man who can preach that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? What's what's happened to this man? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember, Messiah is the Hebrew term and Christ is the Greek equivalent. Both mean anointed one, Messiah, Christos, Christ. 
After many days had gone by, there was conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket, and threw and in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. So what I'm trying to get here is the chronology of what exactly is taking place between this and what we saw in Galatia now. So Paul's first visit to Jerusalem um, is here in Acts chapter 26. This is, uh, I mean, excuse me, Acts chapter 9, verse 26. So Paul is in Damascus. He's refuting the Jews and so forth. He's proving that Jesus is the Messiah. There is this conspiracy to kill him. They learn of the plan. They lure him through a hole in the wall, uh, in a basket, through an opening in the wall. And then he comes to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. As I say here... um, This lasted 15 days. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him, and so forth. So I'm trying to harmonize this with Galatians. Remember we saw in Galatians that Paul says, But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult with any man. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me, but I went immediately into Arabia. Now, later in Galatians, he says, it was three years later that I went. So that three years is Acts chapter 9 and verse 26. So what I'm saying here is that in between verse 25 and verse 26 is this, uh, is this period. I say here, after many days, between verse 22 and 23 comes Paul's stay in Arabia, which lasted probably a little less than three years. So Paul says, remember, God set me apart, revealed his son in me, I got saved, I didn't consult any man, I didn't go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me, but I went immediately into Arabia. And then he says, I returned to Damascus, and three years later I went down to Jerusalem. So from the time of his conversion to the time he went to Jerusalem in Acts 9.26, his first visit is three years. So from the time of his conversion on Acts 9 until Acts 9.26 is three years. We commonly say Paul was three years in, in Arabia and so forth, but the total time was three years. He was in Damascus first because and he's, we read about him in Damascus. He was in the synagogue preaching and so forth. And, and so forth. Saul grew more and more powerful. Now, between verse 22 and 23, there's this gap. Acts doesn't say anything about it. It doesn't say Paul went to Arabia. I realize that. <laughs> Paul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was conspiracy and I had to leave and go to Jerusalem. So, so Paul is saved, he preaches in Damascus, and he goes into Arabia. Now, where's Arabia? It could be anywhere down here. Nabatee, it could be anywhere out the, it could be anywhere down here. We don't know exactly where it was. Verse 17, and later returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went to Jerusalem. So Paul gets saved. He preaches in Damascus. That's what we see in Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. Acts doesn't... There's a gap between 22 and 23 where Paul goes into Arabia. What's he doing in Arabia? He's getting the Master of Divinity degree. Three years, Master of Divinity degree. (laughs) She doesn't believe that. Anyway, we don't know what he was doing in Arabia, but he was, you know, whatever he was doing... He was doing something, maybe getting revelation. We don't know what what was going on. He doesn't say. 
So he, 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 three years, I went, after three years, I went to Jerusalem. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. Now that's what we see in Acts 26, Acts chapter 9, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And Barnabas comes and says, listen, this is Saul of Tarsus, and he's been converted, and he's preaching in Damascus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and so forth. So Saul is there in Jerusalem. So I'm trying to keep track here now in our minds the Jerusalem visits of Paul after his conversion. His first visit was Acts chapter 9, right here in verse 26. That's his first visit. This is three years after his conversion. That's what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18. Three years after his conversion, Paul went to Jerusalem. He's making a big point of it in Galatians because he's saying, listen, I didn't converse with those Jerusalem apostles for for three years, and I only stayed 15 days. So I didn't get my message from them. I got it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, we're told in verse 29, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. See, again, it's those Hellenistic Jews who don't want to be seen as outsiders by the Hebraic Jews. They're afraid of any deviation from Judaism. Stephen was a deviation, you know. We don't want that. Now here, now we got the we got Paul, this man who was with us before, and now he's deviated. So they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. They tried to kill him. Remember, Paul talks about this in his conversion. When he, when in Acts chapter 22, it's the second time he mentions his conversion. In Acts chapter 22, verse 17... Paul says, When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, this is three years after his conversion, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people there will not accept your testimony about me. So the Lord told him to leave, and he does leave, as we read here. The believers learned of this. They took him down to Caesarea and sent him off. So he leaves from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Caesarea is the port city to leave Jerusalem from. And he goes back to Tarsus. Um, I say here on verse 30, apparently Paul took a ship since he went to the seaport of Caesarea. This agrees with this statement in Galatians 1.21. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia. He's talking about after that first visit to Jerusalem, I went to Syria and Cilicia, this province here we talked about, remember? I went to Syria and Cilicia. Paul was born in Tarsus, as we know. Paul apparently remained in Tarsus until Acts 11.25, a period of about seven or eight years. So we'll pick up Paul again in Acts 11 when Barnabas goes and looks for him. Remember, there's a church that gets started in Antioch, and Barnabas goes up there from Jerusalem to help out, and he says, "This we need the Apostle Paul here. We need we need Paul here to, to come. We need Saul. And he's over in Tarsus, so he goes and gets him. So this is about seven or eight years Paul is there in this period. What was he doing in that seven or eight year period? Well, we're not told. Um... I assume Paul was evangelizing. Because what's interesting is when Paul goes on his first missionary journey, he goes over to Cyprus and then up in this way, and he comes down to Derby here, and he stops and goes back. He doesn't go into this area. Acts never records. On his second, he passes through. But Acts talks about churches here too, as we'll see. So it may be that Paul did evangelize there, established churches there. We don't know. Acts doesn't tell us everything as we might like. I say during this time, Peter conducts an itinerant ministry in Lydda, Joppa, and Caesarea, culminating in the conversion of Cornelius. We meet Paul next in connection with the founding of the church at Antioch. 
then we have that summary statement in verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. Notice I mentioned Galilee, only mentioned in acts of Christians there. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. But Acts has said nothing about any work in Galilee. But you know, there had to be Christians there. Jesus spent most of his time in Galilee, right? He had that great Galilean ministry. He was up there. People were converted. So there must have been churches up there. Luke just doesn't tell us about those churches. We'd like to know about them, but he's trying to tell us how Christianity got from Jerusalem to Rome, and Galilee doesn't figure in there. It's not important to our story here. All right, let's stop here tonight, and we'll come back and pick up next time with the Apostle Peter in chapter 9 and verse 32. All right? Thank you.